Well, this morning we look at a passage in our series in the Gospel of Luke, which is a, a story of the life of Jesus. We know the truth about Jesus by just reading the, the truth about him, uh, what he said and what he did from um, Luke, who was a medical doctor, a close companion and friend of the Apostle Paul, and he was inspired by God to present the message of Jesus in a most strict, orderly manner so that we would know the truth about who Jesus is. And so that's what we're going to receive and be able to experience this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 18 or listen as I read through it. There should be a Bible around you underneath one of the chairs, and it'll be great for you to look at the text as uh, we examine the text this morning. As I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about the story of Aladdin. Remember the story of Aladdin? Aladdin uh, is often an adventurer, and he, he somehow comes to this vase and rubs it in a certain way, and out pops a, a genie. And the genie grants him three wishes. He only grants him three wishes, though I think every of us who've listened to the story, or read the story, or seen the story portrayed, we always wonder, why didn't Aladdin just simply ask on the first uh, wish, can I have a thousand more wishes, all right? But he only got three wishes, and... And that was the challenge of what, what kind of wishes should I ask for? Well, we're looking at a passage today in which it's not about wishes, but it's about an opportunity, an opportunity to be with Jesus and to be with Jesus and ask a question, uh, but not three questions and not as many questions you might want to ask him, but you only had opportunity to ask him one question. And what would that question be? And I want to submit to you in the passage we're going to look at this morning, this, uh, this individual chose well. He asked life's most important question, and we're going to try to see that this morning. In fact, the whole passage really is about this question, but as we are going to examine this question, what I decided to do was ask seven questions, if you get the so what part of it, about this question. And this is really what we're going to ask this morning about life's most important question. What is it? First of all, we better know what the question is. And then, who needs it? Who needs the answer to that question? And then thirdly, who can answer the question? Who really has the, the right or authority or the, the wherewithal to be able to answer this, this most important question? And then what is required of it to, to get in on what this question is all about? And then, of course, then often we would ask about something that's very valuable and maybe might take some effort to get it. How hard is it to do what this question asks us to do? And then the, kind of the value question, why is it worth it? Why is it worth it to submit yourself to what this is offering? And then, uh, I guess to conclude it all, what's the so what? What's the so what of this passage? Now, in many ways, this story is a familiar story to many people who've read the Bible uh, or heard the Bible talked about. And it's a familiar story, but sometimes I think we miss some of the things that Jesus is trying to point out as a man comes to him. If you found out that you can, you can go through life and you can learn from your own mistakes or you can learn from what? Other people's mistakes. And in large part, that's what we're going to see today. This is a man who started off pretty well in encountering Jesus, but let me, uh, this is a spoiler alert, he didn't finish too well. And so this morning what we want to do is, well, what is it all about as far as life's most important question? So beginning at the beginning of this particular account or encounter in the life of Jesus, Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 18. So that's one of the ways to remember what this passage is. It's Luke 18, 18, as we, as we read about an encounter of a man with Jesus. And first of all, we're going to ask the question, very basic question, about life's most important question. Well, what is it? What is that question? Luke chapter 18, uh, verse 18. A, a ruler questioned him, this is Jesus, saying, good teacher... 
what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Or to put it another way, just how do I get in on this? How do I get life that is eternal? And if that is a true opportunity that we can somehow receive that which will last forever, something we really want, uh, well, how, how can I get it? Wouldn't that be an important question? Now, some people believe there isn't such a thing as eternal life. They, they, they don't think there is going to be anything after the grave. And if there is something after the grave, we don't think it's going to be a, a place where there's pearly gates and, you know, and beautiful streets and the presence of God and however you want to portray it. They, they think that's all just fairy tales. Kind of like the story of Aladdin. Oh, that was a spoiler alert, too. Did, did you think Aladdin was true? Okay. Uh, but, but, this, but this is a story about Jesus being asked this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I want to take a step back just for a moment. As you look at the, the words we have about Jesus, uh, the story about Jesus, there, there are four accounts in the New Testament that describe Jesus. Uh, three of them uh, kind of have a parallel approach to it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and they all three write about this story or this, this encounter with this, this man. What's interesting about it is that they are slightly different in terms of their account of it. Some people who are skeptics of the Bible say, well, I told you the Bible can't be inspired, can't be true, because there's mistakes in it. One account says this, and another account says this, and there's contradictions. But they're really foolish when they attack the Bible this way, because really what you have here is you have like three journalists observing the same story, and some leave some details out and some other put details in. We would never say someone was inaccurate just because he didn't put all or she didn't put all the details in that somebody else did. And so as we look at this, we see some fascinating things when you put the accounts together, and we'll hopefully draw that out. But basically, they all begin with the same introductory statement or question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And even with that, I want to back up a little bit, because if you think about it for a moment, it's always good to think when you read the Bible. Would you agree with that? Nod your head like you're still with me, all right? It's good to think when you read the Bible. Is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Are you, are you stating somehow that some people aren't going to live for eternity? Well, well the Bible says everyone's going to, to live for eternity. Everyone's going to continue to exist. Well, if that be true, then what's the point here? Well, the point is that whenever the Bible describes existing in a place you should want to be, or if you knew about it, would want to be, that's always described as eternal life. But when it's described a different way, it's described with eternal judgment, eternal punishment. Or as in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, and this same story is found in the Old Testament and New Testament about what is coming next, there is eternal life or everlasting life or everlasting contempt and disgrace. And so this man, who was Jewish in nature, and Jewish in nature, Jewish in culture, familiar with the Bible, he would realize there's a couple options out there. You want to be with God forever, or do you not want to be with God forever? And any sensible person would say, I want to be with God forever. But somehow he was beginning to doubt that maybe just being Jewish was enough, or familiar with God's commandments wasn't enough. And so it's interesting in this account by some of the other writers, you get a little bit of a glimpse into the heart and soul of this man who comes to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question. Well, the second question, well, who needs it? Well, we know because he comes to Jesus, this person thinks he needs it. 
In fact, we know that he believes he desperately needs it. And in some ways, you might think, well, he might be an unlikely person who would feel somehow desperate to get in on this. If you put all the accounts together, you find out this individual comes to Jesus, first of all, as a man, and so he had a position of at least gender power. We also know that he was young. He was a young man. And not only do we know that he was a young man, but as Luke describes it, he was a ruler. And then later on, we find out that he was rich, not only rich, but extremely rich. Now, most people who desperately need something, there's something not right in their life. But he had everything going for him at this point. Would you rather be, well, some of you might not want this, but would you rather be young or old? <laughs> most people would rather be young. That's all the commercials. They're trying to get everybody younger, looking, looking younger. Whether you, look long, whether you are younger or not, they want you to look younger, right? He, he was young. He was a man. He was a ruler, a position of power, and he was rich. So if anything, you would have thought, well, why doesn't he just put it off? And that's what a lot of people do, don't they? They, well, maybe I'll try religion later. Maybe I'll try God later. But right now, things are going pretty well for me. I'm young, rich, I'm a ruler. Things are going well. But what we have in, in, in the account is that this, this man who desperately needed, in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, it says this, that he ran to Jesus. And when he ran to Jesus, he knelt before Jesus. Most people in prominent, who are prominent in your culture, your society, or the people who know you, you don't run to somebody and you don't fall to your knees before someone, do you? But that's what this man did. So he asked the right question, got that right. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Secondly, what he got right, this is not a casual request. This is most important for you. And so he ran to him. My asked said, why did he run? Because he didn't want anybody to get a what? Get ahead of him in the line, okay? You ever had that thing where you want to meet somebody and everybody else rushes to him? So he, he ran to him, and when he ran to him, he knelt before him because he wanted to show that he honored him. So we know what the question is. We know who needs it. And the other part of this is everybody needs it, even people unlikely to, to need it. But then we ask the question, well, who knows how to get it? Why did he ask Jesus? Well, this is what he says about Jesus in verse Verse 18, he called him a good teacher, but this is the response of Jesus. And Jesus said to him, I'm going to stop there for a moment. You know what Jesus would often do? And we've already seen this in looking at the life of Jesus. Jesus would often answer somebody's question with a what? With a question. You know, how frustrating can that be sometimes? But he really wanted to penetrate the heart of a person. So he asked this, he asked this great question. He answers it with a question. And Jesus said to him, why do you, this is the rich young ruler, call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you're thinking, why did he go off tangent? Why did he go off topic? Because he realizes that this person really needs to come to grips, not just with the words out of his mouth, but in the depths of heart. Who really knows the answer to this question? If you go out on the street today and ask people, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You're going to get a lot of what kind of answers? Help me out in here. You can talk to me. It's, it's, I'll give you permission in church to talk. Okay? You're going to, if you talk to anybody, if you talk to a lot of people out there about what must you do to inherit eternal life, you're going to get a lot of what kind of answers? Wrong answers, right? Because you're going to talk to people who have no idea what the answer is to that question. In fact, often what people will do, they'll say, well, no one really knows how you can have eternal life if they thought about it for a moment. I've often got that from answers from people who have thought about it, well, no one really knows because you haven't been there yet. And some might give 
based on their background, their answers to it. But this person knew, look, I've got to ask this most important question to someone I really am convinced knows the answer. It, it, like, for instance, this has popped my mind. If you, if you have an electrical problem at your house, don't come at, asking me, all right? Because I don't know the answer. There's all kinds of questions you might have. You've asked me. I, I would be clueless because that's not my area. I don't, I don't have, I've never been involved with a lot of, I mean, I can change the socket, but that's about it, right? And so he knew this was an important question. He lived in a religious environment. And so he went to the source that might know an answer much deeper than the one he'd been told all his life. You know what, what the Bible says about Jesus being called good by this man? This is why he kind of pushed him a little bit. Why do you call me good? Psalm 14, a familiar verse to some people. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so you're foolish if you believe there, there isn't a supreme being in this universe. How can all these things that you see exist? How can you see all this intelligent design? How can you see all the complexity of life and, and believe that somehow this wasn't done in, in, in purpose and by a creator? But then it goes on and says this. Oh, oh and by the way, I want you to know in Psalm 14, 1 through 3, it says it twice. There is no one who does good because there is no one who is good. And he makes an absolute statement. This is of all mankind, there is no person who is good. So if there's no human being that is good, then what are we left with? Is there nothing good in the universe? Well, in Psalm 103, it says, praise the Lord. Oh, because the Lord is good. So if this one that had a religious background knew anything about the substance of what he had said, he said, you are the good teacher, and what Jesus was chiding him, are you just saying that I'm a little bit more effective communicator than other people? And that's how many people look at Jesus. You're a pretty good teacher. You're a pretty good communicator. You fascinate people by the words that come out of your mouth. Then we've all had that. We've had teachers in school that were good and some that were what? Bad. They weren't that good, right? They, they were boring or they just didn't seem to know their content and we just didn't get anything out of their class. And they say, well, no, everybody comes to your class, they get something out of it. He said, we're not talking about that kind of good teacher. In fact, he uses a particular word in the Greek language. Say, well, I'm, there's no one who is good in their essence except God alone. So if you're asking life's most important question, you better ask that of God. And do you understand what you've just done? But it was also, I want to say, just to all of us in an environment like this, not on, we would expect to say, well, who can tell us about how to have eternal life? Well, God could. Who could, who could tell us about eternal life? Well, well, Jesus could. But you know what happens? The Bible says that when you come to know Jesus in a real way, that you're now a new creature in Christ. Old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And then in verse 18, it says this. Oh, oh by the way, you who have been reconciled by Christ, I have now given you the ministry of reconciliation which is just religious language saying this, uh, you have the answer to the question, how must, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You must come to Jesus. And so Jesus was the original answer to the question and the giver of the answer, and then we are just the good gossipers. We are the ones that say, this is what Jesus said. You must come to me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So as we look at life's most important question, what is it? It's what must I do to inherit eternal life? Secondly, who needs it? Everyone needs it. Even the ones that we would think most unlikely. 
He doesn't need Jesus or she doesn't need Jesus. She has everything going for her. But if she doesn't have Jesus, she has nothing. He doesn't have nothing. He doesn't have anything. Thirdly, who can share what the answer to that question is? Of course, Jesus can, but so can we. He he has changed our life, and we can share with others who has changed our life. But then the story gets a little bit murkier because now he, he speaks into this individual who has come to him eagerly. This is a person who wants to buy. If you've ever been involved in sales, there are people who are, are reluctant shoppers. And, you know, they come into the showroom or whatever like that. I just kind of, well, I'm not buying anything today. I'm just looking, right? This is a person who wanted to buy. This is a person who wanted to get what Jesus was offering, eternal life. So you're saying, he, this is going to be an easy one to sign, get signed on the dotted line. Because he, he wants it, right? He ran to him. He knelt to him. He, he asked the most important question. But then Jesus responds, and this is what is required. He says, verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. So what is it, requ- what is it of us that is required to, to know and have eternal life? Jesus responds by repeating five of the commandments. Interesting enough, he didn't, he didn't do them in order either. He did seven, six, seven, four, eight, nine, and five. You would have thought he could have got them in order. Well, actually, he, he picked those because he wanted to, to speak into his life and say, look at it. If you want to qualify, the qualification is you, you've got to be perfect. You, you've got to obey all the commandments. And James has said, if you've stumbled in one, it's like you stumbled in, in them all, right? And, and so... Um, here, here's, the, here's the dividing point. Now the, the rich young ruler is going to reply back. And he, verse 21, said, All these things I have kept from my youth. Now, what is essentially this, this young man saying to Jesus? Since the days I was conscious of, of living out my life, either morally or immorally, following God's plan or not following God's plan, I have obeyed all of God's commandments, which essentially is saying to Jesus, I am not a, this is the S word, sinner. So I think, what is required of us if we're going to have eternal life? We have to admit that we are a sinner. And Jesus gave him five commandments to say, look at it, <laughs> how are you doing on these? He said, I'm doing really well. I've never, I've never disobeyed any of them. Now, he's going to hit them right between the eyes in a moment, but, but why should this have been a, a, just a convincing point by Jesus? Because Jesus had already preached on the, on the Ten Commandments and the, the Sermon on the Mount, and he gave them a clear picture of what they really meant. And, and really, the, the commandments in the Old Testament then and now are, are, are have a, a primary purpose. It's not simply to put something up on your wall and say this is a nice way for me to live or our society to live. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, it is to be a tutor. What does a tutor do? It teaches us what we would not be able to learn without it, right? Or without that individual. It is a tutor to lead us to Christ. And what is it doing when it's a tutor to leave us to Christ? It's showing out our desperate need that we are sinful. 
that we fall short of the, of the mark that God has put, the standard. And God's not grading on the curve here. If you're a little bit better than somebody else, that's not going to measure up. And so he was desperately trying to tell this person who was coming to him, eagerly wanting what Jesus was offering. But then when Jesus told him what's required, first of all, you got to admit your need and, and be willing to, to turn from your sin. He basically said, I'm not a sinner. I've been doing it from the very beginning, following it. Of course, all you have to do is listen to some of the things that Jesus said. You, you've heard it said, you ought to love your neighbor. Well, I say to you, you ought to love your enemy and do good to them, even when they persecute you. How, how good are you doing that? And that's in the top two commandments, not to love your neighbors yourself. Oh, oh, oh then let's just take one of those things. Take, take uh, committing adultery. And here he's speaking to a man. He said, you know, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery, but I say to you what this really means. If you have lust in your heart for a woman, you have committed adultery in your heart. You know, why has this whole Me Too movement, you know, been throughout our, our nation? Why are we hearing all these stories about people in power abusing women? Because men have adultery in their heart. They have sexual sin in their heart. And, and, and really, this was, this was a statement saying, look, every, every man gets enticed and and, and does in his mind what maybe he's not done in action, but God sees it as guilt because there's guilt in the heart. And, and you could go to any one of these commandments where we all fall short, sins of the spirit as well as sins of the flesh. And yet he was unwilling to admit he was a sinner. In Luke chapter 5, verse 8, there's an interesting story about Peter. And Peter was with Jesus. And when, when you're with someone who is you know, sinless, all it does is show your sin. When you see someone who is God, it just shows you how much you're not God. And Jesus performs a miracle. He used to perform a miracle in his area of strength. Uh, they're out fishing one, one day and night, and, and Jesus said, hey, throw the net on the other side. And when he threw the net on the other side, they came back with all this kind of fish, and he said, depart from me, I am a sinful man. He didn't point out anything other than he was now in the presence of the one who created everything. And he saw how far short he was of him. And then all you have to do is look at the immediate context. In Luke chapter 18, remember he had the, Jesus tells the story of the, the religious leader, the Pharisee, and he was a well-respected man in the community, and he did everything, all the little details in, in the law, at least visually and physically and and when he goes to pray in the temple, he, he begins to praise God how good he is, and he's so much unlike these other sinners. And he uses the word I five times in a prayer that he pronounces so loud that everyone, is, the, the attention of others are looking at him and saying, I wish I could be like him, but they didn't see his, his proud heart. And then you have the tax collector come, and he has a one-sentence prayer, and the prayer is, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And here you had a man who, who looked like he was close to God and he was far from God. Here you had another man who looked like he was far from God. But now he was becoming close to God because he hit the first principle. Do you admit that you're a sinner? Do you admit that before God you stand guilty and you desperately need, desperately need the mercy of God, not getting what you do deserve? And, and what, what is sin? Sin is, sin is like a deadly disease 
ravishing you on the inside. And a person who has a disease, they're never going to get help unless they admit they need help. And they're never going to take the medicine and they, and, unless they believe the medicine can, can change what's going on and that's wrong on the inside. As we think about what keeps us from God, it's that which breaks the heart of God, which is our sin. And only He has the answer to our sin. So what is it? It's What's the life's most important question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Who needs it? Everybody needs it. Who can give the answer? Obviously, Jesus can give the answer, but so can we because it's all pointing people to Jesus. Fourthly, what, it, what is required? It's required for us to admit we desperately need forgiveness of our own sin. Well, how hard is it to get it? And here's the encounter with Jesus that shocks us. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have the treasure in heaven and come follow me. I haven't shared this in the first service. I was reading an article out of Christianity Today this week and it said that out of 10 people that go to church across the nation, four out of the 10 people believe if you go to church, God will bless you financially kind of the health, wealth, and prosperity message. That if you, if you get close to God, he'll make you wealthy. Well, Jesus seems to take the opposite view with this individual. He says, if you, if you really come to me and get eternal life from me, and you've run to me and knelt before me, oh, this is what's going to be required of you. You've got to take everything you have, and you have a lot, and you've got to give it away. Now, if, if that was the message of a church, you can't come to this church unless you give everything away, how many people do you think would come to church? <laughs> not too many people, right? And, and, and before we get overly shocked by this, Jesus never used this presentation of the gospel with anybody other than this man. Now, it's true for everybody. When we come to Jesus, we give up ownership. We, we sign over the deed of our life and everything we have to him. But with this individual, he realized this was the entry point. Because he had given him seven, four, six, eight, and five commandments, he had skipped some of the other ones. But really what his problem was, he he had broken the first commandment and the 10th commandment. The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other idols or gods before you, before me. And, and what was his God? His riches. And, and so he, he hit him at his point of need. And in Matthew's account, I think it's Matthew's account, he, uh, he makes this, actually Mark's account, he makes this statement, Mark 20, uh, 10, 21, he loved him and then said these words to him. He wasn't trying to ruin his day, ruin his week, ruin his month, ruin his year. He, he, he loved him. He, he desperately wanted him to get it. And in many ways, we've got to realize that anyone who comes to Jesus, they've got to be willing to make the sacrifice, which is to give up control of who you are to the one who's in charge of all this world that we see. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, and he said to them, if anyone, which sounds to me all-inclusive, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Then he goes on in the next verse, and he says in verse 24, just summarizing it, if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. And if you lose your life, you will save it. Oh, and in case you think it's not worth it, it, it what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? This is more important than anything. This is the pearl of great price. If you, you get this pearl, it's worth any, more than any other pearl in the world. This is the, 
the treasure found in the field, if you, if you find this treasure in the field, you know, sell everything to get it because there's, there's nothing more than this. And so what he was saying to this man with compassion, with love, you've got to give up that which you're holding on to tightly if you're going to get what eternal life is all about because I'm the one that is the source of life. Both quantity of life with God, but quality of life as well. And as you think about the gospel, the gospel, and this is, this is the challenge in terms of understanding it and then sharing it. The message of Jesus to have eternal life is simple, but it's not, it's not easy. It, it, is, it is as clear as Jesus saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, whosoever believes in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. But on the other side of it, believing is not just making a nod to God. Well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. I'll take it. If he had quoted John three sixteen at this point, rather than saying, you know, sell all your possessions, would he have signed on the dotted line? Of course he would have. But believing is saying that you are more important to me than anything else in this world. We're called to be stewards of what we have. And that's why he did not tell everyone to sell all the possessions they had. But he's saying, this is what's most important. If you don't get it, you're not going to get the most basic truth of, of knowing me, which is recognize you desperately need me because of your sin. John 1, 12 and 13 says, but as many as received and as many as received to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe on his name, but it's, it's not a superficial faith. Probably the, I don't have it in your outline, but probably the most sobering words in all of God's word is found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, where these people come up to Jesus, and Jesus said, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. For only those who, who know the will of God and do the will of God are part of my family. So it's as simple as it's just responding like a child. And he had just told the story about coming to know Jesus like a child, just desperately depend upon him and embracing him by faith. It's not complicated. It's very simple. But it is a yielding of your life completely to him and all that you are and all that you have. But it's not superficial. And so this man who had run to Jesus, knelt at Jesus, asked the right question, expressed that he really needed it. At this point, there was another God in his life. You know, the Bible does talk about money in many ways. You know, we're supposed to work for it to provide and enjoy. We're not to worship it. We're supposed to be wise with it. That John 1 passage is out of context here. But Proverbs speaks about that. We are to be cheerfully generous with it. So all those things imply that it's not about giving up everything you have physically. In this man's case, it was. But for all of us, he's called us to be good stewards. But where is our heart? Where is our life? And it's, we're going to require that we understand it's a, it's a commitment. Well, Jesus responds to this, and he amplifies his answer as far as how hard is it. He says... Um, 
verse 23, but when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. This is the rich young ruler. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? And, and wealth doesn't have to be just financial resources. It could be anything else in your life that, that crowds out God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? Now, these disciples didn't have a whole lot. So, so they weren't looking at it personally, but they realized, that, wow, we, we thought the blessed people were the people who were going to get to heaven. If they can't make it, who can make it? Who can be saved? And, and Jesus already said, it's impossible. I, I don't know if you've looked at a Campbell and, and, a, and a needle. They don't fit, right? I don't care how hard you're going to try. You're not going to squeeze that in. And, and so Jesus goes on and comments on his own little story. They heard it said, who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Which is simply saying anyone can be saved. A rich young ruler, a person who has absolutely nothing, who's lived a life of sin like the tax collector. It, anyone is, is, is capable through the, the power of God to, to respond to the message of Jesus and embrace him and surrender their life to him. But it's going to be God who's going to bring them to himself. But then you'd have to ask, well, what's the motivation? If you have to give up everything, and that's true for everybody, we give up everything. Why would we do that? Why is it worth it? 28 through 30. And Peter said, behold, we, we have left our homes and followed you. It's kind of like saying, I, I think we've tried to do what you've asked us to do. And he said to them, truly I say to you. Whenever Jesus said truly, it didn't mean that when he didn't say truly, he wasn't telling the truth, all right? But he was about to say something they didn't, they didn't really grasp before he said this. Truly I say to you, because they thought they had left everything and we've made such great sacrifices. There's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, the rule of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Which is a simple way to say you can't outgive God. If you give God everything, he's going to give you much more in return. It might not, be, might not be being living on easy street in this life. It might. But you will get back much, much more because you've committed to him. Let me put it another simple way. When we get to heaven, if we know him, none of us are going to be disappointed. None of us are going to say, I wish I went to the other place. We're going to receive back so much more because God is good. He's always good. And he's good all the time. And, and we might not receive everything in this life that we want, but we are going to receive so, so much more than we can even imagine. So what's the so what this morning? We looked at what is it? It's how and what must I do to inherit eternal life? Who needs it? Everybody needs it. Who, who knows it? Well, obviously Jesus knows it. And he, he's given us the message of telling other people about it. Thirdly, what's it required? It's required that we admit that we desperately don't qualify because of our own sin. How hard is it? It's going to be the hardest thing we ever do because it's surrendering our life to Jesus. And why do it? Because you can never outgive God. So what's the so what this morning? Wherever you are right now in your spiritual journey, what's the so what? Number one is, is that we need to realize that what God wants us more than anything else to do is to trust him. The Bible says, without faith is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. When we trust God, we'll never be disappointed. And so we need to live a life trusting our lives with him. 
Secondly, we, we, we got to live uh, in response to his offers. We need to live for him. We don't live for ourselves. He died for all that they who live shall no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so, so it's, not, it's not our will be done, but his will be done. So we, we trust him to the point we, we want him to lead our life. And of course, if we're trusting him and living for him, we, we want to share it. We want to share this message to others that this is, this is, the, this is the freedom that God gives to know God for, for now and for eternity. There isn't anything better than that. So the question for us this morning, are we trusting? Are we living? And are we sharing the it? The it is the message of Jesus. And if this morning you've never made that commitment, it all begins with the beginning. The ABCs of the gospel. You admit your need and turn from your sin. And we all start that way. We believe that Jesus Christ died for our sin and rose again. And then we commit, commit to follow him as the leader and forgiver of our life. We embrace him as Savior and Lord. We say, not my will, but your will be done in my life. I'm willing to give up everything to follow the one who, who I can't outgive. 